Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. And hello again. Welcome back to the GeoMob podcast. Today, I'm really excited because we've got a guest with us who was, in my opinion at least, the standout speaker from PhosphorG UK a few months ago. We've got Sean Gorman from Pixel 8 with us to talk today. So, first of all, welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. So, I've known Sean, albeit only remotely and virtually, for over a decade now, dating back to his first GeoVenture, which was something called GeoIQ, which ultimately got bought out by Esri. And he is, in my opinion, probably the most successful serial geo-entrepreneur in our space with a string of companies under his belt. He'll tell us a little bit more about that in a minute, hopefully. But his latest venture is something really exciting, which we're also going to hear about. So welcome once again, Sean. Tell us, before we get to Pixel 8, tell our listeners a bit about yourself, about GeoIQ, and the other things you've been up to before Pixel 8. Sure, yeah. The Actually, becoming an entrepreneur was a bit of an accidental stumbling on on my part. I was I was doing a postdoc at George Mason University right outside of Washington, D.C., and uh, some of the research we had been doing kind of weirdly ended up in the news. Um, we'd been building a bunch of infrastructure maps of where fiber optic cables were and other critical infrastructure like pipelines and railroads and electrical power grid. And after 9-11, folks got really interested in that from a security standpoint. We had been looking at digital divide and access to infrastructure for disenfranchised communities. And so we ended up spinning the research to look at security aspects. And then as kind of sensationalist American media tends to do, uh, and it ended up on the front page of the post when there was a really slow news day. And one thing kind of led to another. It snowballed. We ended up on a lot of kind of TV shows and news interviews. And then the university filed patents on the research, which was kind of premature, but uh, they saw an opportunity. So we ended up spinning a company out of the university. And myself being the postdoc and the research team, I wasn't in a faculty position. So I ended up being the person that had uh, the bandwidth to go and, and work on the startup. And that startup eventually became GeoIQ and, and the GeoCommons crowdsourcing project. Obviously, we kind of pivoted away from the infrastructure side of things and working on security. Right around, this was 2003, roughly, when the news story came out. Then we spun the company out in 2005-ish. And that's also right around Google Maps launched. And we were trying to find a way to share the... Uh, analysis results we've been doing with the infrastructure work onto the web. And when we saw Google Maps came out, we were like, wow, that'd be really cool if we could put our maps on top of Google Maps and just throw it in a web browser. So we started hacking around with the Google Maps API and we we're able to start posting some of our analysis on the web. Um, and folks you know, became much more enamored with the fact that you could post uh, GIS-based analysis, network analysis on the web. Um, with a slippy map than uh, than with the actual analysis. And so we saw an opportunity there and kind of pivoted to say, hey, can we build a lightweight GIS on top of slippy maps like Google Maps? And, you know, which kind of led us to, well, we need data. What are we, how are we going to get data to feed this thing? And so we started thinking about, well, maybe we could crowdsource data. It was right around the time Wikipedia had come out. OpenStreetMap uh, was, was a nascent thing as well. And we thought, well, maybe we can crowdsource all of these GIS shapefiles that are all over the web and get them into one centralized place where folks can analyze them and search through them and curate them. So that was kind of how 
GeoCommons and GeoIQ evolved into a company, which was a ton of fun. I mean, I was I was an academic. I I knew little about startups were running a business. So it was definitely a crash course and trying to figure all those things out as well as build technology. I wasn't an engineer by any stretch of the imagination. I was, you know, I was the worst coder on our academic team of folks. And that just became worse and worse as we hired actual professional software development people. So got to learn a lot on that aspect also. But it was a wonderful experience. We had, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and you brought Andrew Turner on board at some stage, I remember, because he joined you, didn't he? Yeah, Andrew had a startup with Mikel Marin called Mapufacture. And yeah. I think like four or five years into the company, uh, when we had GeoCommons out and we were just about to launch Maker, the cartographic tool on top of it, we we talked to Andrew and Mikel and they were interested in finding a home for Mapufacture. Um, so we found a, a way to make that happen. And Andrew joined the team as a CTO and, and brought a lot of great exuberance and connections to the, uh, the open geo community, which was, which was a wonderful addition. Yeah. And it was a fantastic tool, I have to say. You know, I remember using it back in 2008, 2009, and it was an amazing tool with a fantastic selection of, of data. You know, and the idea that you would bring all this data together in one place and be able to search for it and just overlay it on the map was a brilliant tool. And that led you to Esri, didn't it? Yeah, it was it was an interesting kind of roller coaster at the time and that kind of led us led us to Esri. And I think all this is out of NDA now because it's been so many years. But there was there was interest from Google and then we also spoke with Digital Globe. And unfortunately the opportunity at Google fell through for a variety of kind of typical VC back company soap opera things. And then we ended up uh, with a lot of interest from Digital Globe and we thought we were going to end up there. And then Esri ended up kind of coming in at the last minute and uh, with a with a nice offer so the, the team ended up at Esri, which was a bit of a surprise with, with how the company had started. I think we went into Esri with a lot of stereotypes and, and found most of those to be false and ended up being a fascinating tour on the inside of a massive GIS company. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And uh, I think lots of people have got, you know, Esri's portrayed as the sort of giant dinosaur of the industry. And in fact, it's very, very far from that. And I guess at the time you joined them, they were really embracing the web and delivering services through the web. And uh, there's probably quite a lot of geocommons learning that has gone into the ArcGIS online platform now. Yeah, Andrew did a really nice job. I mean, he really took the the lead on on the open data initiative um, at Esri and and working through the R and D center to create Esri Open Data platform or extension that they run now that has done a lot of really great work getting more municipal and local data out onto the. Uh, publicly available through Esri, which was really cool. Also, the team, you know, led up with with Chris Helm, and some of the others also got a lot of Esri on GitHub for the first time, and really kind of took the lead there of of taking you know, some projects that were already open, like uh, GIS tools for Hadoop. I'm, I'm probably not getting the exact name right, but there was a wonderful implementation mm-hmm. of of Esri's core geometry API for Hadoop. Um, that David Kaiser had done um, that was open source, but I don't think a lot of people knew about it. And getting you know some of these diamonds that were in the rough at Esri and getting them up on the GitHub and, and getting awareness around those, I think was another really great thing that the team helped in part to, to cause a, you know, a bit of a shift with while they were there at Esri. And, and the team that continued under Andrew's leadership you know, continued to make great strides in that uh, direction. But then you moved on. Yeah, actually, you know, surprisingly enough, we had been talking with the folks at Esri about, about machine learning. And we were really excited about 
machine learning and social data and streaming data. And we saw potentially a big opportunity happening with machine learning. And so we, we pitched it as a concept. Unfortunately, it was a little too early um, and folks were a bit skeptical of neural nets being a bit of a dark art and uh, not always being uh, as mathematically transparent as I, I think folks are used to with more traditional uh, GIS-based analysis. And so it ended up not being a fit. And one of the, the key folks that had worked at, uh, at GeoIQ was an engineer named Pramukta Kumar, who led the engineering team for a good bit. And he ended up going back to Georgetown to get his uh, PhD in physics. And he was finishing up. And he and I had been talking about some of these opportunities around machine learning and data science as how it applied to uh, geospatial data. And we thought we'd have a go at trying to build a new startup around that concept. So. He and I started uh, Timber a little after, a little over a year after we were at Esri and thought we'd give it another go and see if we could sort out a new startup that way. And what happened? Uh, well, it ended up working out pretty well. It was it was really fascinating because we had a, a non-compete with Esri for a year, so we couldn't do anything with geospatial data. Um, so it was kind of a fun exploration and, and going back to more hardcore mathematics and data science and, and machine learning without a geospatial perspective to it. And I, I think it was it was healthy just to take a dive into non-geospatial technology and get ourselves kind of back up to speed with more mainstream uh, work that was happening. And then also a year away from it really kind of reminded us of how much we missed it. After that, after that year passed, we started working with some satellite imagery uh, from Landsat and starting to apply. We saw you know lots of fascinating work happening with machine learning on satellite imagery. And in the meantime, we've done quite a bit with social data and we started adding in some geospatial aspects to that as well again. But the satellite imagery stuff really started to take off. You know, Planet had gotten a good bit of funding. They had a new imagery source that was fascinating. So we started working their imagery and then we uh, started talking to some folks at Digital Globe and started working with their imagery. And so it made for uh, just a really, really fascinating space to be working in um, that was uh, new and exciting. And so we really started focusing on that, that satellite imagery opportunity. And you were in the right place at the right time to that, weren't you? Because there was an explosion of imagery and it was just at the beginning of sort of artificial intelligence, neural networks, those kind of things starting to be applied at massive scale to that imagery. Yeah, very much so. You know, my dad always says it's better to be lucky than good. And uh, I think both both with crowdsourcing and machine learning, we were uh, kind of in the right place at the right time by happenstance. And then fortunate to have a really good team around that helped us take advantage of, of being in the right place at the right time. And some of those team, because you had several of your original GOIQ people were in that team as well, I guess. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the most rewarding things about GOIQ was the alumni network that, uh, you know, so many good people came through in you know, the seven or eight years that we were uh, running the startup and all of them kept in touch. We saw the Slack channel where we all keep tabs on each other and, and talk ideas. And, and the good news is, you know, some of those folks have gone to do their own startups or have you know, gone on to their own successful careers, but uh, quite a few have become you know, serial repeaters um, as we come up with new ideas and test them out. And it's also the exciting thing is, you know, probably, you know, 80, 90% of the of the good ideas, or you probably make the case that all of the good ideas um, across all three ventures haven't come from me. You know, Pramukta has, has been the core of a lot of the really exciting technology and mathematical ideas. Chris Helm has come up with tons of, of innovations and ideas. Uh, Winnie Palampour, who's uh, running the front end of the team and a font of innovation. And those are just the folks currently involved. You know, going back, right. there's been so many people you know, like Andrew, uh, Kyle, you know, a lot of folks that have continued to operate within the in the community that really drove a lot of the, the cool concepts that emerged from the uh, from the company or companies. I'm going to make an observation here because I'm 
always interested in how people get businesses started. And you sound like at least the first two, and we'll talk about Pixelate in a minute, but probably that one as well. It's the technology that has got you started rather than a market gap or opportunity that you've spotted. Yeah, I think, you know, that's usually the role that I end up playing is that, you know, one of the engineers or one of the technical folks, you know, has an idea of, of solving a technical problem. And then we start to sit down and, and think, you know, is there a, a business application for that idea? And, you know, and oftentimes we see that there's not, you know, it's like, hey, it's a, it's a brilliant technical idea, but we just really don't see a, a market for it. And then oftentimes we think we do. So I think it's a little different from, you know, I, I think, you know, many, many folks espouse the concept of, you know, that the technology should always trail and you should go find a distinct business problem and focus yourself, focus yourself around the business problem. And, you know, I think we've done it a little bit differently in that, you know, we, we find a, a problem that has both a technical and a business aspects that really engages us, that we're really passionate about trying to solve and figure out. Pramukta has a great saying that, you know, the, the best problems are the ones that can barely be solved. Um, <laughs> that you just get there barely with a lot of hard work and focus, which is a nice place to be because it, it means that eventually you'll get across the finish line but you're going to create a good technical moat around the business by doing so. But I think, you know, also if, you know, probably fair criticism of the ventures that we've had is, you know, to use an American baseball analogy, they've been base hits. You know, they haven't been home runs, uh, financially speaking. Individually, it's all been great for us, but, you know, it's not been, you know, the massive exits that you would see or even the massive valuations with somebody like Mapbox Ricardo, who, you know, far exceeded you know, the valuations and money raised than we did with, with either of our ventures. But that's that's also a bit of the way we operate. We we tend to try to keep things small, efficient, raise the amount of money that we need because it gives us uh, more exit opportunities down the road. And that's, Absolutely. you know, a bit of the, you know, the downside of, of we really, you know, kind of focus on the technology because that's what we love. And, you know, sometimes the business doesn't end, end up being a home run because of, of that focus. But it puts us in a situation where we really get to work on the things that we enjoy. Um, and I think at the end of the day, that's what we've learned is that, you know, that's the reason that we work together. Um, and then we really enjoy what we do is a lot of with the way the, the company is structured and, and where we put the focus. And you know, sometimes that results in better financial outcomes and sometimes worse financial outcomes. And so that, that's the kind of interesting thing with the new one is, is to see where Pixelate falls on that spectrum. And I think that's part of the fun journey is, is figuring that out. One of the, better parts of the process, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, as an outside observer, and we can talk about, we're going to talk about Pixelate in a second. I think you know, if you're working at something that you, you really enjoy working at, you know, solving a technical problem which really challenges you, but which is rewarding, then that's a great place to be working. And maybe if you do what you want to do and you enjoy doing it, the money will follow. I mean, clearly, you've got to have a business that generates enough revenue to pay salaries because everyone's got to put food on the table and all of that shit. But you know, actually, you don't need to go into business thinking, I want to do a 50 million or a $100 million exit in five years time. You know, actually, if you build up a business that employs 10, 20 people, that's doing interesting things, everyone's having fun, and you're making a profit every year, that's okay. You know, it may not attract massive venture capital interest, but it'll get funded and everyone will have a good time doing it. Big advantage, I think, of not over fundraising. You know, I mean, we could speculate on 
the exits for several companies in our space. But, you know, there are companies that have raised colossal amounts of money. And you look at those businesses and wonder, how are they ever going to give a return to their investors? The only way the early investors can get out and make a profit is if somebody buys them out because the business is never going to generate profits that will pay a decent return on that investment. Yeah, it's, you know, it's one of the challenges with, uh, you know, there, there was an interesting thread that Steve Coe started a couple of days ago on, you know, what's the hardest problem in, in geo right now? Yeah, I saw it. Tongue in cheek, I poked at it. I was like, business model, right? This <laughs> where we, we've all struggled <laughs> as far as, you know, how do we make create that massive business model? I tried some, somebody had, I'm going to blank on the name, but somebody had a really great response where they said that, you know, once you get a business model, it's no longer a, a geo horizontal play, right? You, you found a business that, solves a real world business problem, which I think it has a lot of a lot of truth and merit to do it. And uh, you know, not that there haven't been examples like Esri where there's you know it's truly a horizontal geoplay or Mapboxing Cardo. And all three I have great respect for and have all generated, you know, significant revenue. But you know, but the the question always kind of remains of of, you know, is there that sweet spot where you become innovative company that that gets that generates the kind of revenue, and, and arguably, you know, Esri's done that, but with a very unique formula that's probably not replicable by anybody else. So yeah, it's it's a fascinating question, and I think only time will tell. You know, there 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 could be, you know, I I don't know what the the financials look like for a, a Mapbox or a Cardo. Obviously, you know, they've they've performed surely well enough to get the the valuations. You know, especially Mapbox, you know, their valuation continues to go up. And Cardo continues to do fascinating things and build customers. So I think you know, time will tell. You know, is it is it an IPO? Is it a large acquisition? But they've certainly created value and, and changed the industry dramatically from when we started. You know, I think Absolutely. a lot of what a lot of what we wanted to grow up to be, they've become. And, and I think that's great to see. It's it's really healthy for the industry. But it's still that kind of existential question: is will will Geo continue to be a feature of of mainstream IT stacks or you know, is there is there something special about it that allows it to thrive and flourish as as its own industry? You look at it currently. I'd argue that you know the feature side of that is winning. You know, as far as the number of companies that have Geo as a feature and what their valuations look like in aggregate compared to the companies that have Geo as a specialty, um, it's it's fairly lopsided. But that said, it you know there's there's power in in specialty and. And keeping those things cohesive with within a single entity to really drive innovation and do interesting things. So I, I don't think the story is told, and I, no, it's and fun, fun I think, watching it happen. I think when you talk about companies that have geo as a feature, they're typically got what we would call old-fashioned vector GIS, you know, with as a feature, you know, they've got some basic location as a feature, you know, what things are near this, what things are on the route to this, that sort of functionality. When we start talking about the massive, massive data that's coming from remote sensing, you know, satellite imagery and stuff like that, you know, where you're talking about, I don't know, petabytes of data being generated by the day or something, that is, I think, you know, that specialism is not something that's going to become main, a mainstream feature for Salesforce or 
almost any other business. You know, I mean, you're going to be specialized to handle that sort, those sorts of volumes of data and derive intelligence from it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. The the division between raster and vector on these things that you know, the yeah. geos of future tends to be vectors, right? You know, Elasticsearch can handle a lat long or a, a geocode in mm-hmm. a polygon, but you're not going to load in a, a massive geotiff to it. And I think it's, it's an, an interesting segue to where we saw a really interesting yeah. opportunity was, you know, with, with the satellite imagery, it was, it was funny, you know, so much of GeoCommons was all about vector. And then everything we did with Timber was all about raster. So it was, it was one really cool switching from one to the other and trying to keep fresh with all of that. And then while we were working at, at Digital Globe, we began to begin to see a, a new area merging with, with autonomy and augmented reality. And it was... You know, and, and they, it was generally called spatial computing, right? But but the spatial wasn't the way necessarily the way that we think of spatial. It was spatial as in being three dimensional and sitting within Cartesian space. And uh, and so we began to think about that quite a bit. Was there a role for traditional geo in that? And, and a lot of that is kind of that evolution was what got us to, to pixelate. But a lot of it is, you know, to your point of you know, not only were satellites picking up terabytes of data, and we're getting more and more. Low Earth, orbit, low Earth orbit satellites that were repeating patterns faster and collecting more and more data. But we also saw a parallel terrestrial collection of data for autonomy and augmented reality that was that dwarfed even the amount the satellites were grabbing just because the frequency and the detail, level of detail that you get from these terrestrial collectors was even greater. But we didn't see much traditional geo playing in that at all. And so we began to think about why was that and, and was there an opportunity with the fact that that the computer vision and machine learning folks that were working in that space, you know, really weren't looking at any traditional geo approaches to what they were doing? So that segues us right into Pixelate, doesn't it? Just describe what you're doing at Pixelate. Yeah, so the opportunity that we that we saw at, at Pixelate, and this really came from from Pramukta. He had left Digital Globe and was doing a postdoc at Stanford. And I I, I won't get this story exactly correct because I'm I'm not smart enough to completely understand everything that went into the ecological research that we we're doing, even after reading a couple of papers. But in short, the the, the Asner Lab at Stanford, which is now at Arizona, was looking, and and this is the part that I'll probably muck up, is that they were looking at like carbon offsets the Amazon and trying to do estimations of carbon production, potentially for an economic model. I can't remember exactly what the output was. But anyways, long story short, they needed to be able to estimate the, the size and height and volume of trees to be able to power these models. And they had planet imagery to do it with. Challenge being is, you know, planet imagery is three to five meters all on Nader. You know, the number of trees you can get into a three to five meter pixel is, is quite a few. And so using planet to try to predict that is is hard. And so the, the cool idea that Pramukta had was that they also had LIDAR data from aerial surveys from NEON over the same parts of the Amazon that they wanted to do these predictions. And Pramukta had the clever idea that you could train a neural net with the LIDAR data to infer the, the tree size and volume and the patterns you saw in the planet three to five meter pixels. And in general, the, the concept work and was pretty exciting. I think there was a lot of nuance to actually using that for policy decisions but the, the general concept had uh, had promise. So we started think, thinking about how that how that metaphor might work other places. And at the time, we were seeing a lot of interesting inbound activity at Digital Globe where folks were interested in using satellite imagery to create 3D models like what Brycon does for augmented reality or autonomy. There's companies like Sturfy that had used satellite imagery to create localization algorithms for augmented reality that looked interesting. And some other folks, you know, beginning to, to chip around that space. Um, and we thought, 
well, you know, if LIDAR was a great reference for the planet imagery, you think like LIDAR has really great positional accuracy. Planet satellite imagery has really good temporal accuracy and that it's repeating every day, which is phenomenal and amazing. And uh, so if you could take the locational accuracy and combine that with really great temporal accuracy, it was an awesome hybrid. So begin to wonder if the same thing might apply to these 3D reconstructions where you know, things like aerial LIDAR or aerial oblique derived point clouds or even synthetic aperture radar data um, that has really good locational accuracy. And then we have all this ground video that's being made by just regular commodity cameras, videos and photos that have great temporal accuracy. They're getting updated multiple times per day. If we combine those two things together, then we could potentially have a really up-to-date 3D model of a geography um, that had really good positional accuracy, really good temporal accuracy, and also really good terrestrial detail that, you know, one of the downsides of doing 3D reconstructions from satellite uh, and even aerial is that you get the tops of buildings really great, the top half of buildings really great. But as you get to the ground view where people are actually have the perspectives where they're doing autonomy and they're doing augmented reality, the, the detail gets quite bad. You know, like when you do those 3D meshes, it begins to look like a Salvador Dali painting or melted butter. You just have too many artifacts because you're your nadir angles or you can't get them low enough to get a really good photogrammetric reconstruction. So we saw all these kind of missing pieces and thought that we could fuse them together to create a really great detailed model that was cheap and easy to update. And so that's where we really began to focus in to say, you know, could we do this where it was updated far more frequently, but also probably most importantly is economically efficient, that it's so expensive to build these models from a compute standpoint and a data collection standpoint, because your your LIDAR enabled cars with co-registered RGB and radar on them are, you know, a quarter million dollars each. Satellites are very expensive, flying aerials expensive, flying LIDAR is expensive. Um, so you don't do these things very often. But the use cases we saw for augmented reality and autonomy was that you need to be able to update these things frequently. You look at like a Google street view, right? You know, it's like not uncommon that your street was collected in 2008 and has been updated since. And, you know, we're looking at a world where things need to be updated, you know, monthly, weekly, daily, even, you know, the economics needed to change in our mind for that to happen. And we saw this as a potential path to be able to facilitate that. And the other cool thing that we we saw was that, you know, paying, like having these dedicated collects and dedicated fleets for this also wasn't economically sustainable. That really crowdsourcing and what we'd seen with OpenStreetMap was really such a better model, but it was so expensive to compute the data and to collect the data that how would you ever crowdsource that? So that was the other angle we were looking at. If you could drive the cost down low enough to compute the data, and just use commodity cameras that people already have or could cheaply go purchase, you know, then the opportunity to crowdsource this data would become far more feasible and, and then the economics get a lot better. And then there's also another potential cool crowdsourcing project, which we really love and it's kind of in the team's DNA. So if I was going to sum that up, what you're building is the the technical capability to merge numerous different sources of imagery, uh, LIDAR, ground truth into one 3D model of initially a city, but ultimately the world. Yeah, 100%. That's the goal is, you know, if, if you want to be able to map the entire globe, you need to use as many different sensors as possible, just because people have all sorts of different kinds of cameras. There's all sorts of different kinds of reference data. And if you can just get that data off the shelf, or people can use, bring their own device to collect or purchase a really cheap device to go do that, 
the odds of you having somebody in all the places that you want to have data just gets infinitely better. You know, it was, it was in many ways much the same breakthrough with the, that Steve identified with OpenStreetMaps, that GPS was getting a lot cheaper. We're actually talking recently because we know we, we use GoPro 360 cameras quite a bit to do our first initial yeah. baseline collects. And you're saying, yeah, they're about the same price as GPS as were for the first uh, mapping parties. And uh, and I think, you know, similar thing that, you know, the, the price points in these things are going down to the point where you no longer needed to be a surveyor to use GPS. Anybody could go and afford to buy handheld GPS. Um, or most people, many people could, I should say, um, or you could loan those things out or bring them to a mapping party and people could use them and return them. But the economics became feasible for folks to do mass collections of, of GPS traces. And that only became more and more true the further along OSM got. Um, but recognizing that opportunity that anybody could use a potentially use a GPS to go grab these things really facilitated the opportunity to create street data in an entirely new way. And so we kind of classic pattern recognition, we saw a bit of the same thing. It's like, hey, you know, like a 360 camera is getting really reasonable to buy for a couple hundred bucks. And yeah. uh, the cameras on our phones are getting incredibly better. Cars are getting mounted with 360 cameras as a feature when you purchase them. All these things are kind of coming to bear from an economic standpoint where, you know, we could potentially facilitate a crowdsourcing project if we can figure out how to compute the massive volumes of data economically, which is kind of the next challenge, right? You kind of see the economic pattern and then you have to figure out the compute problem to make to make the second half of that work well. And you've done that. You, I mean, you've now got a demonstrator which people can go and have a look at, which shows how you've done that for part of Denver, haven't you? Uh, yeah, that was the you know the genius of the team. Again, like Pramukta, Chris, and Winnie working together solved some incredibly hard computer science, computer vision problems, which was a real real testament to them because you know going into it, we weren't sure if we could solve it. You know, going back to I think Pramukta's analogy that it's a barely solvable problem, and we spent you know most of the summer of of 2019 and the fall wondering if it was barely solvable or not solvable but eventually the you know the team had a breakthrough and came up with some really clever ways to take commodity video and photos that is perpendicular to the aerial reference that we're using right so you think lidar is shooting straight down mm -hmm. so you get a little bit of a few points returned on the facades and a bunch of points returned on the roofs and then you have a bunch of video or photos that are taking on the ground from a person they're getting tons of points on the facades a little you know some points for the ground uh, but nothing for the roofs and so you're trying to think of how to co-register those two point clouds together that are pretty much perpendicular to each other from how they're collected. Trying to get that matching to work was was a really difficult problem that had, you know, largely been unsolved in the computer vision space. We talked to a couple of, of folks from from Google. The challenge that they'd had trying to solve that problem over the last ten years, where you know they've had that data for quite a bit. They have the Street View data. They have their aerial data and, and satellite data and trying to get those things to co-register you know they remarked on on the challenge of it so it was a real testament to the team that they uh they figured it out um, i think google's figured it out recently as well they've had some some posts where they, they talk about that but uh but it was a really fun fascinating problem to dive into but and it's kind of continued cool. to evolve from there how cool that a team of how many people are you? Four of us and an intern. Four people and an intern crack a problem that uh, has been in the hard-to-solve category at Google for nearly a decade. I mean, that's a pretty amazing achievement in itself, Sean. Well, it's definitely a testament to the team. I'll also say that you know, when you look through the literature, it was kind of peaking towards a solution that, you know, it's, and you see this a lot in academia and, and you see, you know, research coming out in a various space and, and people are getting closer and closer. And then it kind of hits a shifting point of phase transition that then unlocks it. 
And typically you'll see multiple people solving the same problem around the same time. And I think that's a, a bit of what what happened here. I, I, I wouldn't say, you know, necessarily, we, we definitely built on the backs of a lot of smart people, you know, from yeah. standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But but then most of science has done that. Most of science has done that for for, for centuries for sure, yeah. and centuries now. <laughs> yeah, and you still need a good team to be able to keep up with it all. Yeah. So that brings me to a and in a way that takes me to a nice question because is what's open source in this? Is mm-hmm. the tech stack open source? Will the data be open source? Yeah, so the data will definitely be open source. We plan on having an open data model. And you know, we're still looking at a couple of different business models around that. You know, Mapillary's dual licensing model is intriguing and successful. There's you know a few challenges around that, but you know, the the construct I think is a really really fascinating and encouraging one. Um, there's also the GitHub model of if your data is open, it's free to use the service. Um, if you want the data to be closed and proprietary, then there's a fee around around that, which is another interesting model. But regardless, there's there will be a core. The core will be will be open data. Then comes the next question with open source, which is always a challenge, right? You know, in many ways, from a business model standpoint, you can kind of choose to have open data, or you can choose to be open source, and you know, you're either selling the software, or you're selling the data. You know, you can have both. In the case of like OSM, where the entire stack is open. Um, and the data is open, but then it becomes difficult for financial sustainability. And then you end up with a lot of the challenges you see in OSM of like you have corporate sponsors, but then people doing the mapping have challenges around around the corporate influence in the project. There's not necessarily a, a magic silver bullet there as far as what the right combination is. And I think we're still exploring that. I think we're very committed to the open data. We're also very committed to open source. And I think, you know, the question is, how much can we open source and still be able to keep it as a viable project and a viable business? Yeah. So I think we're still exploring there. There's definitely things like, you know, we, Winnie and Chris built this awesome 3D viewer in 3JS that's really phenomenal for visualizing and interacting with the data. We have this thing called Pixelate Studio, which is probably a, a bad ripoff of Mapbox Studio, but we couldn't think of a better name at the time that conveyed what it did with 3D data. Like the guts of that when we have time with four people not being spread too thin, we definitely want to open source that and contribute it to the community. And there's several other things along those lines. You know, there's a question as far as, you know, like some of the core co-registration algorithm, some of the core ways that we split the compute to keep it efficient, things like that that are still open question marks about, you know, can we can we open source those things and still keep the project viable? Well, well I, th- I think that, you know, I'm more in the open source community than the open data community nowadays. You know, it's where I do most of my work. But I think it's not all or nothing, you know, and the idea that you had about open sourcing the viewer and maybe open sourcing some other parts of the tech stack. But there's nothing wrong with retaining some proprietary stuff that is what people pay your company money for. You know, you don't have to give everything away and just be a services company. I I think it's absolutely fine to aim for some of that middle ground where you keep some secret source and have some open source. Yeah, we're we're definitely big fans of of the hybrid approach. I mean, obviously we you know, we want to open as much as we can and I think it's it's an ongoing 
discussion that changes, you know, week to week as to how much of that we can get away with open sourcing and, and keep keep the company viable. You know, the I guess you know, kind of the good news, bad news is there's you know lots of really really smart big players in this space that are doing phenomenal work. So one of the challenges of playing in amongst elephants is they might accidentally step on you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, not it's not malicious by any chance, but you know, as as they're saying with the Google example, right? You know, like the, the the literature and the research base of all these things are are moving in a trajectory of a lot of people doing things in parallel. And so, you know, how you keep your advantage and how you keep yourself relevant is one of the tricky things being a small startup. So that's kind of the the balance that we uh, we continue to go for. But you know, those those elephants are also phenomenal partners and, and good potential customers going forward. So there's opportunity mixed with risk, which is you know always what makes it interesting from the business perspective. So at the moment, there's just the four of you plus the intern. When do you think you're going to start scaling up, and how are you going to scale up? Yeah, that's the plan. You know, we're really starting to look at fall as our as our scale up time period. And so a lot of what we've been doing is dog fooding. You know, we we go out and collect data ourselves. So we you know we, we have stuff in Boulder, Colorado, where I live, Salida, Colorado, where Chris lives, Winnie and Pramukta in Austin. So they're collecting there. And so we can have these test beds where we go out and, and do our own ground truthing and data collection and build the models and share the data and, and try to iterate with uh, with the people that are interested in it. But really where we want to be is, is again, as a crowdsourcing project. We want to open this up to anybody in the world to be able to up- upload videos uh, and photos to be able to create these models. And so the, the next step of this is beginning to open it up to folks outside of us. And so we have this... Uh, this concept that that we borrowed from CloudMade, where they had ambassadors early on, right. CloudMade would send out their ambassadors to encourage people to, to map with OSM. And so kind of a, as, a, as a twist on that or an homage, we, you know, we thought we'd go out and next try to recruit ambassadors that lived in interesting places to go and collect some video for us and upload it to the platform and create some models. And then start to hopefully generate interest with folks to see what you could do with the platform and how easy it is to upload some data and create a model and begin playing around with it and export it in different formats, you know, take it into gaming platforms like Unity or Unreal um, or take it into CAD models or into GIS platforms. We've been thinking a lot about how we can use this data for OpenStreetMap. You know, even though they're 3D point clouds, you can flatten them into geotiffs. So you think about it from the perspective of you know, one of the main modalities for creating OpenStreetMap data now isn't carrying around a GPS, but it's tracing satellite imagery. But getting up-to-date satellite imagery for everywhere in the globe is incredibly difficult. Usually these are mosaics. So, you know, the mosaics take, you know, at least, you know, a quarter to a half a year to a year to be updated. And how many of those actually trickle down to OpenStreetMap? You know, the, the data is, you know, currency issues. So one of the thing, one of the thoughts is, you know, when you go and collect this 3D data with video is that you can flatten that into an overhead view that's a two-dimensional map that would look similar to what you collect with a drone. I mean, obviously, you're not going to get the tops of buildings, but you're going to get just about everything else. And then we can semantically segment that data and pull out the buildings and the, the, the shrubs and the vegetation and all those normal things, curbs and light posts and things, signage potentially. And then you have a 25 to 50 centimeter accurate map that's segmented that can then be labeled and drawn and added into OpenStreetMap. Right. So, that's one of the things that we're excited about. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to talk about that at, at OSM Connect. We put in a proposal. It's getting this out to the community. Where, you know, this is just one idea, right? The cool thing is once you put the data out there, people will do so many things you never imagined or didn't think of. You know, There's so much more creati- creativity out there than we have in our four collective heads or uh, five collective heads um, that we're really excited to see. So we actually had our first ambassador in London beginning to collect data 
he had some really cool collections for uh Soho, where you got uh, Piccadilly Circus and Trafalgar Square. So it's just really cool seeing a place that I can't go to right now and be able to see like cool 3D imagery of that is, is a lot of fun. So we're hoping to begin to solve our scaling and DevOps problems that to make sure that we can handle a whole bunch of concurrent users and we can scale the infrastructure up and down to keep the cost low. So as we add in more users, we're beginning to do those load tests in the real world as well as synthetically um, to make sure that we really have that dialed in. So the, the goal is to keep recruiting ambassadors. And then, you know, once we get to a point where we feel that that's really solid, then open it up to the general public. That sounds so exciting. I mean, I, I can't wait until I can strap on a GoPro 360 or whatever, get on my bike and start riding the streets of London and uh, helping to build a 3D model of the whole of the city. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, you can just imagine how that's going to capture the imagination of a lot of people who contributed to OpenStreetMap early on and are now sort of sitting saying, I don't know what's left to map in London, for example. I made that comment a few weeks ago in a podcast to Ed Freyfogel. I said, you know, the problem is that everything's been mapped in London by Harry Wood. And he immediately kept, <laughs> Harry Wood listen to the podcast and then tweeted something. Well, actually, Stephen, if you want a map, and he then pointed me to where I could go and there was a bit of mapping to do. But I mean, I think the general point, you know, is that, I mean, for loads of us, you know, the excitement of the land grab of OpenStreetMap was when we yeah. were able to, to map the, or the unmapped, you know, to, to actually start filling in the map, you know. It's all there to do again, but in 3D now, you know, how exciting is that? No, so, it's, it's really awesome to hear you say that. That's super yeah. encouraging. Yeah, fantastic. Certainly, when you're looking for more ambassadors in London, not only me, but I can tell you a lot of the geomobsters <laughs> in London would be absolutely excited to do this, which leads me to do one last thing before we wrap up, Sean, which is we have this meetup group in London and in Barcelona, in Munich called Geomob, you know, which is a classic evening meetup with four or five speakers talking about geotopics. And then we go to the pub and we drink and talk until late in the night about geo stuff. And of course, all of that has been completely screwed by the COVID. But, um, <laughs> we've had, we've been running Geomob online now for about, um, well, the best part of six months, Ed and I have been running these online meetup groups that last for about hour and a hour, hour and a quarter. And the wonderful thing about them, which we've discovered, we didn't discover, but what the benefit that's come out of these is that we can have speakers from anywhere in the world. You know, there's no reason why you have to be in London or Barcelona to come and speak to a geomob. You know, you can be in, in Denver or Boulder and subject to the time, and it's not too bad because they're London evenings, so they're mornings <laughs> for you guys, but they're not too bad time-wise. So what I was going to say is I'd really like to get you to come and do a demonstration and talk at a GMOB online. And I think it would be a great opportunity to, when you're ready to get ambassadors in London and in Barcelona, where we've got big communities and Munich as well, it will be a great opportunity for you to pitch to some of those people. So hopefully we can organize that in the next couple of months. It would be a privilege and I'm, I'm a huge fan of the talks and structure. I've always been a little bit jealous that there's not something like that here. Although Peter Batty and Brian Timoney do their own 
geospatial amateurs, which I think is kind of a, a similar clone, but, but love the concept, would love to participate. And it would be a fabulous opportunity to, yeah, hopefully get people out mapping their cities. I think, you know, especially during a pandemic, I think one of the really cool, exciting things is it, it gives an opportunity to go and share your neighborhood, share your city with people that can't go there right now. And, yeah. and being able to create that immersive experience, I think is, is a lot of fun. Look forward to you know, it was like just exploring a couple of those bits of Soho from our ambassador, our first ambassador in London was was so much fun that like just really excited to, be, to see more data rolling in and be able to go and check out more places I've never been or I have been, you know, can't go now. I can't wait. So, Sean, we really are going to finish. Before we started, I said to you, our target time is 25 to 35 minutes. We're currently running up at 50 minutes. I couldn't stop nope. you because it was <laughs> fascinating. It was brilliant stuff. I know people are going to love this. How do people get in touch with you if they want to find out more about Pixel 8, if they want to reach out to you with ideas or whatever? How do they get hold of you? Yeah, there's a sean.gorman at pixel8.earth is my email, at Sean Gorman on Twitter. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in just, you know, getting, keeping up to date on the on the project, explore.pixelate.earth as a sign up to get information as we move further along. You can check it out there, see a few sample data sets as well. Um, any of those three would be fabulous and monitor all of them. Okay, brilliant. Sean, Sean Gorman, thank you so much for talking to us for so long this afternoon. I really can't wait to see what comes with Pixelate. I'm going to be first in the queue to be an ambassador. When you're raising money, come and talk to me and Ed because we certainly want to hear. This is just the kind of thing that I would be an, an investor in. And I'll say that online in front of people. <laughs> this is going to be big. There is no doubt. This is going to be big. This is going to be the next big thing. Sean, thank you very much indeed. Bye. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.